to another episode of the Effie Awards. My name is Sean Carter. I'm America's foremost humorist at law. I'm actually America's only humorist at law. The other lawyers are smart enough to keep their day jobs. That said, we've got a great week of Effie Awards. If you're not familiar, this is the best of the worst of legal ethics violations over the last week. And this week we have four interesting new nominees. Remember, there are no winners of Effie Awards, but there are recipients. And the first category this week is going to be the Outlawyer Award. And the nominee is the movie Red Heat. This is a movie from the 80s you probably don't remember. It starred Jim Belushi and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a Russian or Soviet police officer who comes to the U.S. in search of a Georgian drug dealer and ends up partnering with Jim Belushi here. And Jim Belushi plays the wisecracking Chicago cop who tries to teach this Russian about how America, we have freedom and individual liberties, even though we have the largest prison population in the world. That said, we have this clip from the movie. Chinese find way, right after the revolution, they line up all drug dealers, all drug addicts, take them to public square, and shoot them in the back of head. Hey, I never worked here. Fucking politicians wouldn't go for it. Shoot them first. And as a pure aside, by the way, you know what Jim Belushi's been doing for the last decade? You haven't seen him in any TV or movie. So no, because he's actually been growing weed. He grows weed on a huge farm out in Oregon. Uh, so good for you, Jim. All right, puff, puff, pass, pass. That said, I didn't choose Red Heat for the movie or for the weed, although that would probably be a nice side benefit, but I actually chose it for the title, The Red Part. Because here we have a lawyer, and you'll find out in a minute how the red comes into play. This is a lawyer who's in Iowa. He's in his 60s at the time, and he's representing a personal injury client. They're in his office one night, and this is Grandpa. And he sits down next to her, and he wants to show her pictures of his grandkids. Nothing more grandpa-y than that. And then he starts talking about his pancreatic cancer, which is, again, kind of a grandpa move. And then he says, hey, this doctor put this weird device in me, and it causes me some erection issues, which is getting a little different than Grandpa. That's getting to be like creepy uncle behavior. And then he says, my abdomen, my, my stomach, all right? <laughs> my, my abdomen is really bizarre. Do you want to see it? Do you want to touch it? And she's like, not really. But he, he's not deterred by that. And so she turns back to her phone, and when she looks up again, he's now standing there. He's taking off his pants and underwear, standing there, Donald ducking it. And he says, look, this is really weird, this tubing that goes from the scrotum. I don't know why he thought that this would be the thing, right? That every woman wants to not only see a scrotum, but, but a weird one. I can't imagine that that's a thing for any woman. She says, I, I'll pass, but, but thank you very much. He then grabs her hand and puts it on his scrotum. She pulls her hand away and says, hey, you need to cut that out and put your clothes on. People might walk in. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. It's just us. And besides, the door's locked, which now really freaks her out. He's not reading the room. And so he says, hey, by the way, did I mention to you how my pubic hairs are red? Even though I have gray hair up top, I got fire in, in the hole, so to speak. And you know what? That's where my granddaughter, look at the baby. That's where she gets the red hair from. Now look, you want to see my pubic hair? And she's like, no! Now, interestingly enough, she doesn't fire him right then and there. 
And there's a good reason for that. Because she needs the money. He's suing on her behalf. She needs this money, and they're close to getting it. And sure enough, a few weeks later, they get the settlement offer. The lawyer calls on the phone and says, hey, I got great news. Here's a settlement offer. Deal's done. Drop your clothes, and you can give me a blowjob. Don't be mad at me. I'm quoting people. That's what he says. And that was the last straw, or in this case, I guess, weird tube. And so she calls the police. She, by the way, had been recording these recent conversations and turns over that evidence to them. They go and arrest him. And then, by the way, start using evidence against him. One of the things they said, hey, guess what? He does have red pubic hair. And so they start thinking, hey, she must be telling the truth. Unlike him, he was actually making up the whole tube thing and the prostate cancer. Apparently, that was his pickup line. That, that was his go-to. Seduce the women with prostate cancer and weird pump devices. I'm not sure where he thought this was going to work. Maybe he thought she was a cyborg. I don't know. But I do know that the lawyers eventually charged with indecent exposure and sexual assault. Now, from what I heard, those all sound reasonable to me. Not reasonable acts, but reasonable allegations. He looks pretty guilty to me. She didn't just guess the red hair. He's got gray hair up top. That being said, the lawyer gets acquitted at trial. And the jury, for whatever reason, says we don't have enough evidence to convict. But the state bar says, well, we, we do have some evidence. We have some grounds here. Now, one of their grounds was that the lawyer had committed a criminal act in violation of Rule 8.4b. That said, here's the interesting thing, is that he was acquitted on those charges. But that still does not prevent the bar from bringing charges there. Now you say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense if you're acquitted, but the bar uses a different standard. The standard the bar uses is not beyond a reasonable doubt, as would be the case in a criminal trial, but the convincing preponderance of the evidence which I don't know how that works on a percentage basis. It's not 50-50, 66-33, I'm not sure. I also am not sure how they have this evidentiary proceeding. They're not going to hold a whole trial here. But they end up ruling that we don't have enough even convincing preponderance of the evidence to bring the lawyer up on charges of 8.4b, but we do have 8.4g. This is a rule that prevents a lawyer from engaging in conduct that is harassing on the basis of race, gender, etc. They basically charge him with sexual harassment, and that's the charge that stuck. In the end, the lawyer ends up getting a year suspension. Now, it sounds like that's not a lot, and it wouldn't be a lot, except for two things. One, Iowa requires that you, after the year, come back and plead your case as to why you get to come back. And that's going to be a hard thing to prove. He was in his 60s when he did this. What's he going to say that in the last year he learned something different? He you know, saw some Me Too videos. The other thing is that, by the way, in mitigation, one of the things he said is we're only going to give you a year because you promised to retire. So why don't you go ahead and go away quietly. We'll pretend like this didn't happen. And we'll just all pretend like we didn't hear about that tube and red pubic hair. But on a serious note, it's a good reminder of a couple things. One, come on, guys, this is ridiculous. But two, you don't have to be convicted of a crime to face punishment for criminal activity. And finally, even if we can't get you on one thing, the bar will be creative here. Because by the way, 8.4G wasn't their only option. They could have gone for 1.8J, uh, trying to have a sexual relation with the client. They could have gone with, you just a nasty old man, which I'm gonna make up is 8.4X, triple uh, X actually in this case. You get the point, don't do that.
Our next nominee is in the category of worst legal strategy, and the movie is Dear Dictator, and you'll see why in a minute. And here we have a Florida lawyer who received a petition from the Florida Bar fairly recently, December of last year, and they said, hey, you've been causing great public harm. That's their term. You've been abandoning cases, failing to appear in court, verbally attacking the clients, former employees, fellow attorneys, the people who serve bagels in the coffee shop, the coffee people, you've been acting a fool up in here. I'm paraphrasing. You need to answer some questions. Now, here is where it gets worse. This has got to be the worst legal strategy ever. This lawyer responds to that inquiry with an email on, by the way, New Year's Eve. I'm going to guess this is after the drinking started. Here's why. He addresses it with a salutation, Dear a-holes. And by the way, he spells it all the way out. And then asks for an extension because of religious and family purposes. Now, I don't know what religion allows you to call people a-holes, but whatever religion that is, you probably need to get a new one. He then ends this email by saying, here we go again, the bleeping Florida bar, and by the way, he didn't use bleeping, harassing me again. Have a blessed new year, bleepheads. This was so ridiculous and so inflammatory that the bar goes to the Florida Supreme Court and they, on an emergency basis, suspend his license. Now, understand that for years he had been allowed to get away with this because they have over 50 complaints from, as I mentioned earlier, everybody, clients, other lawyers, <laughs> judges, witnesses, everyone. One of the things that this lawyer was particularly adept at uh, was anti-Semitism. We have two different cases, one a former client and one opposing counsel, who he derided as, uh, quote, dirty Jews. Well, singular. One, you bad Jew, the other, you dirty Jew. I, I'm dirty and bad saying that. I feel bad even saying my, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, I'm just quoting. All right, I apologize. This is ridiculous. Couple things. We, the Academy thought long and hard about what category to put this nomination in because as you see, he's really making a bid for the Archie Bunker Award. And it's not impossible to get two Ethies in a year. That's happened before and he might get a second one. So stay tuned for that. I expect that someone's gonna even be more anti-Semitic in the future. It's strange. You'd think that the law would be a little past that. Not because we're better or anything, but because quite frankly, we have a lot of Jewish people in the law. So you would think that people would at least keep their anti-Semitism on the DA, on the down low, because obviously you wouldn't be welcomed here. You would think that lawyers would think that, but nope, every year we have cases of lawyers who are engaging in you know, blatant acts. Sometimes it's name calling, other times it's more subtle, but not that subtle at all. What they'll do is in a landlord-tenant case, they'll argue that, oh, of course the, the landlord was a slumlord. He's Jewish, for, for Pete's sake. And somehow, they think that that is going to be a legitimate claim, that somehow that's not going to be offensive to everybody there, to the judge, who might or might not be Jewish, that it, that it won't be offensive to any court that has to review this. Because if the judge says, oh yeah, that's, that's right, he's Jewish, he must be guilty, obviously that's going to get overturned. Right. That's a pure per se constitutional violation. So I'm not even sure why you would think even if you had someone in your corner on the bench who was equally anti-Semitic that you thought that was going to be useful. 
but we see it time and again. We might see these people in a different context, but the interesting thing here, just from this standpoint, is that we know this is a really bad legal strategy. It's always bad to curse out the people who are going to determine whether you keep your license. In this case, they said, this fool is an emergency. We got to get rid of him. By the way, the case I'm telling you about is the D.C. Court of Appeals also said, well, you're not going to be coming up in here as well. So not only you can't be in Florida, well, you can also be in D.C. As a general matter, I'm going to encourage you, even if you're tempted, even if they are being a bunch of bleep heads, you don't say that to the people who are going to determine whether you get to eat. That's dumb. We have another nominee in the Outlawyer Award category. The movie here is Making the Grade. Palmer Woodrow is going to lose his inheritance unless he graduates from Hoover Prep. You will actually have to get a job. He hates school, <laughs> but he's got an idea. Pay some guy what? Find 600 bucks a month and a bonus to graduate. And where do you propose to find the idiot to do this? Making the Grade. The story of a rich kid who hires a street kid to finish school for him. Making the Grade. Rated R. Now, the lawyer in this case does not pay someone to go to school for him. What the lawyer did is he paid someone to help his daughter cheat on the ACT. He does this in a couple ways. And this was part of that big scandal a couple years ago involving all the Hollywood celebrities, Felicity Huffman and the woman from Full House and um, William H. Macy and maybe even Macy's and Sears and Roebuck. I don't know. Everybody was cheating to try to get their kids into good college. And we, here we have a New York lawyer. He's the managing partner of a big mega firm. Like this is a guy whose firm advertises a couple million dollars a year per partner, big time lawyer. And he says, well, I got money and I'm gonna spend 75,000 of it to make sure that my baby gets to go to the good school. She's having trouble with this whole ACT thing and reading and writing, but that's okay. I've got money and I'm gonna use 75,000 of it to pay someone to take the ACT for my baby. Or rather more accurately, she'll take it and then the proctor that we've arranged to have sitting there will fix the answers for her and make sure she gets into the good school. And that was a plan, a plan that many other well-to-do people had been employing and it all unraveled, the FBI being as investigating it and this lawyer's caught at the same time as everyone else. This is late October of 2019 he is sentenced and convicted of mail fraud and honest services mail fraud, whatever that is. He gets a whole month in jail. He does the month, he gets out, but the bar had suspended him immediately in October of 2019. And it took till now for them to get around to really decide, okay, what to do with this guy. And here's the issue. As a general matter, under New York state law, if you are convicted of a felony, you lose your license, you are disbarred, it is over. And there is no passing gold, collecting $200, you have to go to Florida. However, in this case, they kind of make an exception. Now there is no exception to the rules, it's in the law specifically. However, here's how this lawyer works out a loophole here in a sense. The law says in New York that if you're convicted of a state felony or crime that would be a felony in our state but was committed out of state, so let's say you commit murder in Iowa, then you get disbarred in New York because murder is also against the law in New York most of the time. However, in this case, they said, well, this is mail fraud, which is not really even a thing. We can't figure this out. It only is an interstate crime because you, you know, use the phone or wire transferred money. 
And as a result, we don't really have an equivalent here, and so they don't treat it that way. They treat it instead, instead of as a felony, as something called a serious crime. And then they go through their rigmarole and give this lawyer a two-year suspension, which would be pretty bad. It would mean that he hadn't practiced law since 2019, which he was actually uh, indicted in May of that year. And it would all go out to now, what, 2023? It's four years out, but now that's not how it's going to work. They've made it retroactive to when he was originally suspended. So by the end of this year, he'll be back to practicing law again. And it looks like he'll be back to practicing law because one of the things that helped him and saved him, and gave him only a two-year suspension, which by the way, you know, sort of time served, is because he had 70 recommendations. People came to the bar hearing for him and said the most glowing things about him. People who know me well and love me don't say these things about me. One person said that he has the universal respect and affection of everyone in our firm. Wow. Even in the hearing report and opinion, they praise his community service work. I'm going to tell you, like I said, I have not cheated to get my kids into college, and I don't think people like me this much. So as a result, he got back into the practice of law. A couple lessons to be learned here. One, if you're rich, let your kids go to community college. All right, or some other school, that's fine. They're your kids, they're going to be fine, okay? But more importantly, or equally important maybe, it shows a distinction and I think a fair criticism of the bar process. Like everything else in America, it is geared toward the rich and famous. If this is a solo practitioner in a small firm that no one's ever heard of, it's not going to go this way. He's going to go to Florida. He might not even be able to get to go, go to Florida. But if you're at a big firm in New York City and some of the biggest, most prestigious lawyers can write letters on your behalf, it affects things. And gray areas start working in your favor. They start getting a little lighter and a little lighter until it's white. If, on the other hand, you're a solo practitioner, it's going to be black. Like black bald, black listed. It's like driving while black. It's not going to work well for you. And as a result, this is a good reminder, if you can be rich, it's going to work out better for you. And our final nominee is in the category of the David Copperfield Award. As you may remember, this is the award we give every year to lawyers who have the magical ability to make client funds disappear. And the nominee here is the movie Payback, which will be pretty obvious as to why we chose that title in a moment. And here we have a lawyer where the client is not an individual, but rather the company he works for. It's Shoplet. This is a company that sells office supplies online. So sort of the Dunder Mifflin for you office fans of online office retailers. And this lawyer here is general counsel and a senior VP. And for some reason, they put this lawyer in charge of their PayPal payments. So most of the people pay by Visa, MasterCard, Right. <laughs> Bitcoin, GameStop stock. But every once in a while, someone wants to use PayPal. And they said, ah, let those little PayPal amounts go to this lawyer. He's a lawyer, but he's also in charge of administering accounts. And that means also someone needs a refund. He you know, pushes the buttons, goes on the web, and, and does all those things. And one of the things the lawyer realizes is, I got a lot of control here. I got a lot of authority over this account. And so he starts sending out money to uh, himself. And I mean, literally himself, the email address was his name at me.com. Now you say, well, wait, that's crazy. How does he not get caught? Because he's in charge. The email of confirmation that comes back to the company comes to him. He just deletes them right off the server. At least he thinks he does. And in a six year period, he steals $6 million 
from the company in increments of less than a thousand. Now, that's almost impressive because you do realize that to do that, you need to do thousands of transactions. But he's committed. He's doing a million dollars a year, less than a thousand dollar transaction. It's over a thousand transactions. It's like four times a day he's sending money out to himself. And he also creates some shell companies, but all of them have the same address, his home address. Eventually they catch on to this. By the way, it takes six years, but an email gets through, whatever. They start looking it up, piece it all together, the company does, and they sue him personally. Say, we want our $6 million back. Of course, he doesn't have it because he spent it. You know, steal the money to save it. And he's, you know, of course, invested it wisely in BMWs and trips and luxury, things basically that have no value now. So when they want to get their money back, there is none. He's got like a million and a half dollars, and that includes the value of his house. After the company gets done with him in civil court, New York City DA comes after him. And of course, they got him, dead to rights. He is sentenced to three to nine years for this embezzlement. And of course, he has to give everything he has to the company, and that's still like a fourth of what he owes them. He'll owe them more when he gets out, which he won't have, not getting 49 cents a day in prison. All of that said, the thing I wanted to bring up here and the, th the reason that this has made it into the Ethi Awards is because it demonstrates something interesting. It's crazy, but common. One, the idea you think you're going to get away with $6.8 million, I think it's the final tally, of theft, even in small amounts, that someone's not going to notice almost $7 million missing. That's a lot of money. Even if you are a company that makes millions a year, if you think about it, if you're the controller or CFO and $7 million goes missing, you're in trouble. Someone's going to eventually find that out. Secondly, this company had the weirdest set of controls. I've been in-house counsel in a company before, a mortgage company, which we did billions of dollars of transfers every year. You know how much of that I get to siphon off? None, because I had no access to that account at all ever i've never had access to the money and that's a good thing <laughs> i also don't even have access to the money in my webinar company mesa cle the ones i always you know give the plug for at the end of these programs that's mine guess what we do all of our business by credit card and i get none of those credit card numbers none of them they are bypassed right through to the processor i don't want Right, any of that information on our system anywhere. I don't want it because someone could steal it. I don't want it because I could steal it. I don't want anyone to be able to accuse me of stealing it because I don't want access to it. If anything goes missing, I don't want anybody talking to me about it. So a couple things. One, you know, the controls. If you're in a legal organization, a law firm, everyone should not have access to the money. Very few people should. We have lawyers every year who get in trouble for allowing people access to the money. The other part here is little amount add up. I'm gonna guess this lawyer did not think, I'm gonna keep stealing money for about eight years and then I'm gonna get nine years in prison and that's how I wanna spend my 60s. No, I don't imagine that's what happened. What I imagine what happened is he thought, I'm gonna do it one time. I'm gonna do it just this once. And the problem with doing anything just once is that you don't die the first time. I might have mentioned this before, but I smoked cigarettes for 20 years. Why? Because I didn't die the first time. It sat on the side of the pack, this will kill you, but it didn't kill me the first time. 
And so I kept smoking for 20 years. I figured I'd get out just before the lung cancer comes. And I think I made it because you know what? I quit for 10, 11 years now and the lung cancer has, <coughs> oh, it got me. It got, I knew it would catch up with me. It got me. I'm, hopefully I'm teasing. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is you see how this happens. This is a lawyer I'm sure he thought, you know what, I'm gonna get out of this. I'm, you know, just a few more. You get a couple more, you know, get the kids through college. Just a couple more, you know, get the house paid off. You know, just a couple more, get the new clubs. I gotta have the ones just like Tiger. And I'm gonna tell you, the hardest thing in the world to do is to steal something just once. Right? You either do it never or you do it every Tuesday. And this guy was doing it four times a Tuesday, but I see how it happens. No one ever means to go this far, but it's impossible to stop because you got away with it the first literally 5,000 times. Why would you not do it 5,001? But eventually you'll get caught like everything else in life and then you'll be in the back of the bar journal, I'll be making fun of you at the Ethi Awards and none of this will be good for anybody but my children and their college fund. So try to avoid thousands and thousands of thefts from your company account. Try to keep it under 10 or under one. How about that one? Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next week. And finally, if you're a lawyer and you need your CLE, don't hesitate to get it from Mesa CLE. This is your comedic legal education, but it still counts as CLE. Mesa, M-E-S-A, CLE.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please feel free to go to Patreon.com. Either look us up at Mesa CLE or at the Ethi Awards. And we thank you so much. See you next time.